Morning. How are we doing? Good? Got your Bibles? Grab them. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. This is where we were in our Bible reading plan this past week. For those of you who may not know, the last couple of years we've been doing a Bible reading plan as a church, and so every week we just encourage people to, uh, to be reading that passage every day and also to journal through it. We have a little bookmark and some little tools we give if you choose to do that with just some questions on them. Uh, to ask to help you kind of unlock the text a little bit and to help you uh, through your journaling. But we believe that all the work is done by the Spirit of God and the Word of God being mingled together in our lives. Um, and then we just talk about it here as well on Sunday morning. It's what we do until he comes back. Amen? It's how he changes us. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Let me jump in and read it. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you just pray with me one more time? Father, please open the eyes of our heart this morning that we can see wonderful things from your word. All for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So, if I was here this morning and I was single or not, or not married, um, the kind of question that would be the elephant in the room for me would be, why does this text matter to me? Or why should I care? Why should I listen to what you're about to tell me for the next 30 minutes, Eric? Okay, maybe more than 30 minutes, maybe more like 50, you know, but, um, but why, should I, why, should I, why should I listen to you? Well, here's the deal, is that marriage, as Paul's going to describe here and is, is set out in the Bible, is extremely unique. And, um, and it becomes this matrix, okay, where the more we learn about marriage, the more we are able to more rightly and accurately deeper, more deeply understand the relationship between Christ and the church. And in the same way, the more that we understand about Christ and the church, the more we're going to be able to deeply understand our own marriage. And so marriage, as Paul describes it here, is very beneficial for all of us, uh, whether we're single or married, because in the end, what, what Paul is talking about is ultimately Christ in the church. And for those of us that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are part of this thing that he's been doing for the last 2,000 years throughout the earth and will continue to do until he comes back, and that is build his church, that we are the bride of Christ. And that's ultimately 
what Paul is going to get at here this morning. Now, just by way of review quickly, as we've just been walking verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and again, I've said it several times that we're really actually just skimming the surface. Ephesians is just so dense, it is so rich, and there's so much truth that it almost doesn't do it justice to just take about a half chapter at a time as we've been doing. Nevertheless, that's kind of what we felt the Lord had for us in this season. But just by way of review, you'll remember that back in chapter 4, in verse 20 um, through 24, Paul um, talks about how we're to live this new life in Christ, and he, he describes it as putting on new clothes, and put, putting off the old clothes, our old way of life, and putting on new clothes. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Then here's what I want you to see. Then he says, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That just simply means change the way you think. And we're to be thinking, our minds are renewed on God's word. Okay, So we we have to be able to understand that not everything that comes at us and that everything that we're told is true is actually true. Amen? I know this should be kind of like Captain Obvious type stuff, and yet it's amazing how much we just gobble up with no filter whatsoever. But we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We're to change the way that we think. And so Paul is then, since then, in chapter 4, he's kind of unpacking these different ways that we're to think. And so he talks about you know, the way that we're to interact with one another, and he talks about how we're to, we're to walk in love, and we're to walk in light, and we're to walk in wisdom, and we're to depend upon the Spirit, as we looked at over the last couple weeks. But here's the deal, is that this morning, the things I want to hit about this text are there's some, there are three specific areas that I want to look at that I want us to think differently about. And maybe perhaps even just begin to think rightly about, maybe we've not really thought about these things at all. But there are three areas that I want us to think differently about, three areas where I want us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Here they are. I want us to think differently about the purpose of our marriage or the purpose of marriage. Number two, I want us to think differently about submission. And number three, I want us to think differently about what love looks like. Okay, so that's where we're going. I want us to think differently about the purpose of marriage, about submission, and about what love looks like. Now, first of all, and I'm going to spend the least amount of time on this, or I'm going to to try to, because I've got a lot to say about about the last two, but just as kind of an overarching statement here um, in regards to this entire passage that we just looked at, what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? If I'm going to marry you and we sit down to pre-marriage counseling, to do our first pre-marriage counseling session, this is always the first question that I ask couples, is what is the purpose of, of, of marriage? And um, it, it's quite understandable because I think back when I was getting married, I probably wouldn't have been able to give a very good answer. But usually, you know, there's a couple different things, and they're kind of like in the ballpark, you know? of what the purpose of marriage is, but here is the biblical purpose of marriage. It's, it's, it's quite clear, and you'll see where I'm getting this in the text, but the purpose of your marriage is to be a living parable to a watching world of how Christ and the church relate to one another. The purpose of any marriage, okay, but of, obviously for those that know Christ, we, we take this mission very seriously because we understand that God is the one that ordained marriage. This whole thing is his idea, it's not something we came up with, it's something God came up with. But, but the purpose of marriage is to be a living parable to a watching world 
of how Christ and the church relate to one another. And this is why all throughout this, and I'm going to come back and hit this later, but if you look at verse 31, again, Paul was quoting here from Genesis chapter 2. After he brings Eve, he creates Eve from Adam's side and brings Eve and presents him to Adam. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You're like, that's talking about marriage. It's not just talking about marriage. Because Paul says here, with apostolic authority, divinely inspired text, verse 32, the very next line, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That right from the beginning of creation, God ordained, he gave the institution of marriage to be a living parable, a picture of, how, of the way Christ is going to relate to the church. And, and I, I want us to feel the weight of this a little bit because you remember several, several weeks ago, I believe it was back when we were in chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 14 says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father um, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. And one of the points I made back then, if you remember, is that, is that it's not like we came up with the idea of fatherhood and then we go, well, God is kind of like that. God's kind of like a father. No, I said, God is the substance. We're just the shadow. God is the truest father. Every father here on earth is just a shadow of the perfect image of the father that he is, right? Not the other way around. And it's the same way here with marriage. Is that this, this marriage, if you, if you are married, it is... It is only for a moment, folks. The Bible says in James that your life is like a vapor. This time of year when it gets cold outside, I'm always reminded of that verse. Because you breathe and, and you see your breath. You see that vapor for just a second. And for many of us, I think it may be around the average lifespan these days is maybe around 80 years old. So for eight, you, you have this little 80-year-long vapor of a life here. And probably at the earliest, most of us are going to get married around maybe 20 years old at the earliest, okay, at the earliest. Probably not much early, earlier than that. Um, and so you've got like, if you get 80 years and the first 20 years you're not married, you've got like three quarters of a little vapor of a life that you might be married if God's called you to be married. He might call you to be single as well, and that's also very high calling. Little three quarters of 80 years of a vapor of a life to use this time this one relationship to bring honor and glory to him. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees came to him. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead, so they were sad, you see. Welcome. Bible jokes, they never get old. They never get old. Um, that might also fall into the category of a dad joke at this point too, but which I get accused of a lot. But anyway, the Sadducees come to him and they're trying to trick him in regards to this resurrection of the dead thing that he's been talking about. And they come to him and the Sadducees say to him, um, who say there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers among, among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother, so too the second and the third and down to the seventh. After them, all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And they think this is just going to stump Jesus. You're never going to stump Jesus, okay? Just as a side note. And Jesus responds like this. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Which that's a sermon in and of itself. That'll preach right there. Most of us are wrong in a lot of things because we know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But anyway, 
He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. This marriage relationship that you may be a part of here on earth is only given for a little partial vapor of a life, and it is given to be a living parable to a watching world of the way that Christ and the church are to love and to relate and to relate to one another. Um, we are to bring glory to God by the way that we treat our spouse, both men and women. Okay? A few weeks ago as well, too, I, I quoted to you the, the first, or I gave you the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here it is again. It's kind of a well-known one. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What is man's chief purpose? And the answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, if you remember this or not, but I pointed out that really it's not, it's not two things but one thing because it doesn't say what are man's chief ends, but what is man's chief end, one end. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so you could rightly say man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, by delighting, being satisfied in him. And I just want to throw this out there very practically for, to give some practical purpose to your marriage. And it's going to sound so simple that you're going to be like, that can't be it. It can't be that simple. But I, I'm telling you, I, I think it is this simple. And I'll talk a little bit in just a second about why I think we miss it, even though it's so simple. But according to that, that catechism question, Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I would just want to say this. In the same way, the church brings glory to Christ by enjoying him forever, by being satisfied in him. And if our marriages are to be a reflection of Christ in the church, then we can bring glory to Christ by simply enjoying the spouse that we have been given in marriage. Now again, you might be like, that, that's not that profound, but I'm telling you, we miss it all the time. You can bring glory to God by simply enjoying your husband and your wife. And I cannot tell you, folks, how easy this is to miss. Is that we think that marriage is about something else. You are to seek joy in the joy of your spouse. Husbands, you are to love your wives in such a way that you are working for their joy. I'm going to talk more about that. But just enjoy them. Just delight in them. Wives, just Delight, just enjoy your husband. Is that not simple? But if we do that, we're going to bring glory to God because that is what it looks like for Christ in his church. Do you know that Christ delights in you? He loves you. We are his bride. We are his body. He cares for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Verses 2 and 3, obviously Paul here using marriage language to speak of the church, church's relationship to Christ. <coughs> Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray. Listen, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As the bride of Christ, as the church, how are we to relate to Christ? With simplicity 
and purity. Or the ESV says, uh, with sincere and pure devotion. That's it. We're just to enjoy Him. To be satisfied in Him. And I think that the devil, in the same way that he wants to, um, because he hates Christ, and he wants to um, rob us of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, I think this is the exact reason why the enemy has attacked so many marriages. Because they are to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. But folks, the thing that he's trying to rob us of, I love those two little words, simplicity and purity. Don't let the devil rob you of that in your relationship with Christ. And don't let him rob you of that in your relationship with your spouse. It really is that simple. Are you with me? Delight in each other to the glory of Christ. Think differently about the purpose for marriage. Secondly here, I want us to think differently about submission. Differently about submission. Now this is, this is uh, territory in which supposedly every preacher is supposed to be afraid to wander into. Submission. Conrad, lock the doors in the back. Nobody gets out. Um, we don't have to be afraid of it. It's a biblical, a, a biblical idea and it's a beautiful idea. Um, and the Bible's very clear on it. But I want to give you six things very quickly, Okay. But I want to give you six areas, or six, I guess really just kind of six observations. Six observations regarding submission, almost all exclusively from this text. And as I'm telling you these, I want you to think, is this the way I think about submission? Is this the idea that I have of submission? And if it's not, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewed in the spirit of your mind, okay? Number one. Submission is very closely connected with respect, okay? So look at verses 22 through 24. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So in those three verses, you've got the word submit three times. Now, at the very end of the passage, verse 33, Paul gives a summary statement of all that he's just said about husbands and wives. And so he just talks about wives in verses 22 through 24, then he transitions to husbands in verses 25 through 32, but then he comes back around and gives this summary statement in verse 33. And in verse 33, he says, however, the summary statement, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she, what? Respects her husband. Now you would expect him to say, and let the wife see that she submits to her husband, right? Because of all the times that he's just said, submit, 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 in verses 22 through 24. But, and so um, the idea here um, that the Bible wants to give us is that this idea of, of submission, it's this idea of just simply respect, which simply means to honor, to honor. And again, it's very closely tied to the way that we are to honor Christ. We're just to, we're to love him, we're to honor, we're to follow his leading, just as the church follows Christ's leading, okay? But it's very close, closely tied to this idea of respect, first of all. Second of all, it is a mark of being filled with the Spirit. 
Now, I've mentioned many times as we've been going on throughout this book how many of these unbelievably long run-on sentences Paul has in the original language in the Greek that it was, that it was written in. So if you'll, you'll remember chapter 1, like verses 3 through 14, it's all one long run-on sentence. The rest of the chapter is one long run-on sentence. Here again, Paul does it again. He just can't get away from this. But verses 18 through 24, 18 through 24 of chapter 5, are all one long run-on sentence. And if you'll go back into the context in verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then he rolls right into wives submitting to their husbands. Submission is a mark of being filled with the Spirit. If the Spirit is in control of your life, He's going to lead you to submission. And right on the heels of that, I would, I would say very quickly, is that submission is required by everyone. It's the third thing I want you to see. Because yes, we always focus on wives submit to your husbands. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That we honor one another, that we respect one another. Submission is not just something that wives are called to do. It is something that all of us are called to do by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. Is that the way you think about submission? Fourthly, submission is a mark of being like Jesus. Now this very closely parallels, of course, a mark of being filled with the Spirit. But specifically, it's a mark of being like Christ. Now he's going to talk about headship here. In these verses, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. But jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, okay, or I'll just read it to you. You don't have to jump over there. But Paul says this. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now these are some, again, this is not just practical little tips on marriage. Paul wanders into some unbelievably deep theological waters here. Okay? Is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are co-equal and they are co-eternal. Each one of them, the Trinity, they are very God of very God. Okay? And even though Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, he is still functionally submissive to the Father. And so when we talk about submission, it's not because men are smarter or men are better or they're just, you know, they just, they just know more. Not in any way. Because Christ also is under the headship of God even though he is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. In fact, at the pinnacle of Christ's life here on earth, the perfect life that he lived, What brought it all to a head and that ultimately brought about our salvation was this act of submission. In the garden, he is sweating drops of blood because of knowing what he's about to go through at the cross. Matthew chapter 26 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's submission. Not as I will, but as you will. And wives are to follow the loving leading of their husband in this way, but we are also all to do this to each other at different times and in different situations. Not as I will, but as you but as you will. And the church is always to do this to the leading of Christ. Not as we will, but as he wills. Fifth, it, it's also, as I just mentioned, this idea of submission is rooted in this idea of headship. And this is, a, this is a creation mandate. This is not something new. This is not something that Paul came up with. This is not something that just like old school fundamentalist Bible-thumping people came up with. This is something that God designed from the beginning of creation. <laughs> Very interesting here, and I hope you see the beauty of this. Genesis chapter 2, okay, is where um, it says, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, if you've been reading Genesis 1 and 2 up until this point, and if you were a careful reader, that little phrase there that it is not good should just jump off the page at you. Because up until this point, the refrain that has been echoed over and over and over again in Genesis 1 in the first part of chapter 2 is that God creates something and it is good. And he creates something else and it is good. And he creates something else and it is good. It is good. And he creates man and it is very good. And what's interesting here is that this is before chapter 3. We would expect that after sin comes on the scene, then, yeah, I mean, something, it's not good. All of a sudden, the not goodness jumps into the scene. But this is before sin ever enters the scene. It was part of God's perfect plan to create a longing in Adam for somebody outside of himself to share his life with. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I, listen, I will make him a helper fit for him, just for him. And so after this, then he allows Adam to go through this season of, of kind of longing and looking for this one that would be a perfect fit for him. God knows who's, who it's going to be, but he allows Adam to go through that. And so God does this weird thing where he kind of brings all the animals before Adam, and Adam names them all. And then it's, again, it's, it says that, you know, even after he'd seen all the animals, he just, there, there's no one fit for me. But then God puts him asleep, takes the rib from his side. And the first words out of Adam's mouth when he sees the bride that God had created for him, the first words out of his mouth are this, at last. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of, out of man. It's rooted in the headship of Christ at the beginning of creation. And God designed it this way for his honor and glory. And submission is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And wives are to practice it in the relationship with their husbands. And the church is to practice it in relationship to Christ and following his leading. You know, folks, it, just very practically, just kind of a little aside here. Um, I, uh, I know what people mean, and I, I use this language a lot too sometimes, but as a pastor, people will ask me, what's your vision for the church? What's your vision for the church? Where's Mercy Hill going? What's your vision for the church? And I get what they're saying, and I, I talk about that sometimes, and there are specific things that God, you know, maybe in different seasons has, has called us to do, but I just always want to point out that sometimes the way we talk can reveal a little bit too about what, 
we don't actually understand is that like, it's not about my vision for the church. It's not about your vision for the church. It's about Christ's vision for the church. Amen? And to be quite honest with you, the church in America has completely hijacked the purposes of Christ, and we're trying to get him to submit to us and follow us in what we want to accomplish a lot of times. And it's ugly. It's ugly. It's not beautiful because it's not submissive. Um, submission is, is beautiful as God designed it. And six, the sixth thing I just want you to think differently about, hopefully, or maybe you already do in regards to submission, is that submission is absolutely an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Notice the little phrase here in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to what? As to the Lord. What does that mean? Now husbands want to jump in all the time and say, that's right. (laughs) As to the Lord. It doesn't mean that you're submitting to your husband um, thinking that he's somehow God in your life, that he's Jesus. Okay, that falls apart pretty quick. All right. Um, But I believe what it's saying here, as to the Lord, there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3 where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Why is it fitting? Because again, you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And he said, I will make him a helper fit for him. But but submission to your husband is an act of worship to the Lord. When you submit, when it is, and and ladies, let me just say, when it's hard for you to submit, because, I'll say it, your husband isn't Jesus, right? We're not Jesus. Thank you. It's a little late, but I'll take it any time. <laughs> because he's not Jesus. Uh, even then, it's, it's hard. It's hard like it was for Jesus in the garden. But not my will, but yours be done. And when you do that, Ladies, I just want to get you to see that in, the, in those moments, you, you have an opportunity to present to God something, a, a, a sacrifice of praise and of worship that is so special. It very much reminds me of just a little bit before Jesus was going to be arrested and betrayed of, of what Mary did as they were sitting in the home of a guy named Simon the leper and everybody's sitting around and just kind of chilling and eating and Martha's cooking in the kitchen and all of a sudden just out of nowhere it seems Mary brings out this 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 um, ointment this this flask of very expensive perfume and it was hers and it was hers personally and if you do some research on this it was probably like it was probably like a family heirloom even very valuable very unique but she came and she poured it out all over Jesus right and you know what everybody said what a waste But you know what Jesus said? She has done a beautiful thing for me. And ladies, I just want you to to think about that in regards to the high calling that God has given you in regards to serving your husband well by submitting to him and by honoring him, yet ultimately doing it as worship, not to him. Because a lot of times we're not worthy of it at all. But doing it as worship to Christ. Amen? It's very beautiful, and it's all part of God's design. Okay, next, the, another thing I want us to think differently about is love. I want us to think differently 
about love and, and, and what it is. So he transitions to husbands here, okay? Verse 25, husbands, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Okay, a couple, couple things here about love. Number one, I, well, I'm going to give you all three of them and I'll unpack them. But love, as, as is defined here in this text in many places throughout the Bible, but here it's very much brought into focus. Love needs to be sacrificial, sanctifying, and third, and this is the one that people, that we miss a lot, but it harmonizes with self-interest. Love is sacrificial, it is sanctifying, and it harmonizes with self-interest. So first of all, love being sacrificial. I would say, for most of us, this is the one that we would think of most easily or readily when we think about love. But Paul says here, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and here's the sacrificial part, and gave himself up for her. So just like we just read about in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. He laid down his life for us. He gave himself up for our salvation, okay? So it's sacrificial, but then right on the heels of that, why did he do that? That he might sanctify her. Now to sanctify, it means to be set apart, to be made holy, but look at what that looks like. It not only means to be made holy, but it also means to be made uh, beautiful, to beautify. He says, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Okay, so there's this, there's this cleansing, beautifying aspect to it. He says, so that he might present the church to himself in what? In splendor, not in rags, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now again, this is the husband's job. Husbands, the way that we love our wives is to be done in such a way that it is, it, it, it is sacrificial and it also makes them more beautiful. Not just outwardly, but the idea here is that we serve them in a way that empowers them to be all that God has called them to be. Just like Christ serves us to make us in Christ all that God intends for us to be by laying down, by laying down his life. Okay, There's this language of being washed in the water with the word. Um, there's many commentaries that talk about, there's probably some reference here to the, historically, like there was an actual, like quite the ceremony, okay? Like, I mean, it would actually put like, um, say yes to the dress and bridezillas and all those reality shows. It would kind of put those things to shame in the way that a bride would get herself ready back in, back in the day, okay? And there was this long, ornate process of being, you know, washed and cleansed with, and, you know, having different perfumes put on her over a series of, of, of a week or weeks leading up to, leading up to the wedding, okay? But then also, there's this biblical reference in Ezekiel 16, and don't listen, uh, Ezekiel 16, I want to remind you, it's, it's just, it's straight Bible, it is one of the most graphic uh, passages anywhere in the Bible, I'm not going to read all of it, um, but here's, but it's, it's this wedding language, and I want you to listen closely here to what, this, this is God describing his relationship with Israel at the time, uh, who is also described as, as his bride. It says, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are out of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. I said this is graphic, but it's just straight Bible. Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse 
cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred, and on the day that you, on the day that you were born. So very graphic language. Paul describes Israel before he, he came and saved her as just simply a newborn baby that was not cared for at all and tossed aside. Very graphic image. But God says, when I passed you by and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, he re- I'm not repeating it, he repeats it again. <laughs> he said, I said to you in your blood, live. And then a few verses later, verse 9, he says, Then I bathed you with water and washed, you off, and washed off the blood from you and anointed you with oil. And almost certainly, this is part of the image that Paul has in mind here in referring to how Christ saved us through this washing of water with the word. Very interesting too here, this washing of the water with the word. There's different words in the Greek for either the written word or the spoken word. This here is the word, the word for word in verse 26 is the word rhema which means spoken word, not the written word. And it's this idea, it's, it's a little bit more intimate, and it's the idea of like when you got saved at some point, it might have been like during a sermon, it might have been through hearing something on the radio, it might have been you were reading the Bible for yourself, maybe out loud, or maybe somebody shared the gospel with you, I don't know. But in some way, shape, or form, the word was spoken to you. And in that moment, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. He saved you and awakened in you a desire to trust him and to believe in him. And this is how Christ washes us, and his idea here is this idea of washing and regeneration from the beginning, that we've been cleansed, but this is the reason why week in and week out, whether it's me or anybody else, it doesn't matter. It's the word that matters. But the word of God in the church must be proclaimed. It is how the bride of Christ goes forward. It is how the bride of Christ for the last 2,000 years, and it will continue this way until God comes back. The bride of Christ is, is, is purified and beautified through the proclamation of the truth of the word of God. There is a washing, a cleansing that happens. And this is the one, of the, one of the things that's such an abomination in the church in America is that we've replaced the word of God with other stuff. Things that, that there's no washing effect, there's no cleansing effect. You won't find it anywhere else apart from the word of God being spoken over the people of God, making us beautiful, making us ready for his return. We've been washed with the water of the word. It's sacrificial. It's sanctifying. I would just say this too. Um, I, I'm going to give you a very practical tip, okay? And, and husbands and wives, you're both going to think this is awkward, okay? Just warning. But I'm going to say to you, just let it be awkward. Little assignment. Husbands, I challenge you for the next 30 days, 30-day challenge coming here, to just once a day find a promise in God's word, and I want you to go just speak it over your wife. Does that feel a little awkward? Mike, maybe even wives, you're like, I don't want him doing that. Just, just let him do it, okay? Just let him do it, because maybe, maybe you already do that. That, that. That's great. Just do that. Find a promise in God's word, something that is true of your wife and speak it over her. Sweetie, you are loved. Sweetie, he will never leave you or forsake you. Sweetie, his thoughts towards you are more than the sand of the sea. There's a bazillion of them. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but there's a lot in the Bible. 
So it's not hard to find. In fact, you, could, you would never run out of stuff just in the book of Ephesians. But I want you to do that, husbands, and see what kind of effect it has on your marriage. Lay down your life for your wife in this way. But, but third here, love, it, it harmonizes with self-interest. And I know i, I got to move a little faster here, but um, it harmonizes with self-interest. And this is, this is so interesting, because Paul actually spends a lot of time making this point. Okay? So, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present, so, so that, so that, so the purpose, the reason he cleanses her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, ble- and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, listen, as their own bodies. Now listen to the point. Why? He's giving the logic here. He who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ does, does the church because we are members of his body. Now listen, I want to say something. We, our, our generation is, is in love with being in love with ourselves. And I hear people say all the time that, that, they, that they, they just need to learn to love themselves more. Okay? Have you ever heard that? To learn to love yourself more. I'm going to, I love you, okay? <laughs> but here's what I want to say. Is that the Bible does not talk that way. The Bible does not say that you need to learn to love yourself. The Bible assumes that you love yourself. Now let's take this out to, uh, philosophically here, logically thinking, let's take this out to an extreme example, a little bit heavy, okay, but hang with me. Even when somebody takes their own life, you say, well, no, that person hated themselves. No, they don't. What are they doing? They're doing that to escape the pain out of love for themselves and they believe that that's the answer. It's not the right answer. But they're doing it out of love for themselves. So this is why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Because we, we do love ourselves. Now, in this, now, it's not wrong in and of itself. Again, the Bible assumes it. But here's the point. Here's the point, okay? <laughs> is that, um, husbands, when you don't love your wife sacrificially, and in a way that seeks to sanctify her, you are working against your own joy. Big time. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, yet we do it all the time. Because we don't work for the joy of our spouse. I, I, let me, John Piper, in his book Desiring God, he has a chapter in there on marriage, and um, he summarizes this perfectly, okay, just exactly what I'm trying to say. Very straightforward. He says, the reason there is so much misery in marriage is not that husbands and wives seek their own pleasure, but that they do not seek it in the pleasure of their spouses. The biblical mandate to husbands and wives is to seek your own joy in the joy of your spouse. To seek your own joy in the joy of your spouse. So husband, if you can embrace the mission that God has for you to seek your own joy in the joy of your spouse, then all of a sudden you're also working for your own joy. It's kind of the logic here. I think Paul had this, this mission, this mindset, this idea in mind even in regards to his ministry. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, he says to the Corinthian church, he says, we do not lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Working with them for their joy. Okay? So it is sacrificial, sanctifying, and it harmonizes with self-interest. Okay? Now very quickly, what does this look like? What's required to nourish and to cherish? Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. Again, husbands are, are very, very closely tied here to the head and the body. Okay, Just like Christ is the head, we are the church of the body. He's the husband, we're the bride. In the same way, husbands are the head of their homes. Wife is more the body, is the imagery that's going on here. Um, nourish and cherish. Uh, my body would not be nourished if I did not have a mouth. The mouth is on my head. Things that I that I take in. Husbands, very practically, if I could just, um, it's not that wives aren't allowed to think for themselves or, or, or take uh, ideas and, and learning and knowledge and understanding in for themselves, but like last week at the men's retreat, one of the things we, we pressed on the guys and kind of challenged them with a little bit was that like, husbands, you, you, need, like, like you need to be aware of all the false doctrine that's out there. And if you're going to lead your family well, then you need to be aware of what your family is consuming, okay? Because you're not going to cherish your family, your body, your wife well. If not, you need to cherish it. It's the idea of um, my head, if I have a problem with my knee, it's my head that goes, that's wrong. That needs fixed. We need to get some help here. Husbands, take the lead in cherishing your wife, cherishing your body, making sure that she is nourished and cherished, cared for. Okay. And now, as he goes on here, we're back to this verse that we kind of I mentioned at the beginning just as Christ is the church because we're members of his body and in this quote from Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And again, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. Don't miss this, folks. This is such good gospel news right here. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. But remember, he's talking about Christ and the church. Do you know this morning that Christ holds fast to you? He holds fast to you. He left his family in heaven to hold fast to us. It literally, the word hold fast, it literally means glued. He left heaven and glued himself to us. Do you know how he did that? He was so committed in all of eternity past. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, existed for all of eternity. He came, and in real time, space, history, he put on flesh. The Bible calls it the incarnation. I told you this, is, this passage is just filled with deep theological waters. But for all of eternity, he put on flesh, and he did that to save us. And he was so committed to it that he was, he was willing to remain in flesh for the rest of eternity. Do you know that? That when Christ ascended into heaven, he is not spirit like he was in all of eternity past. He forever took on a body. That's why in Acts chapter 1, when you see him ascending back up into the clouds, the angels show up later and they said, just as you saw him go, you're going to see him come. He was willing to put on flesh for all of eternity in order to save us, to glue himself to us, to hold fast to us. Again, this has been the historical understanding in the 49th question of the Heidelberg Catechism, 
says, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? It says, first, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of the Father. But second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, to himself. The resurrection of Christ, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And he, in bodily form, is seated at the Father's right hand. And because he is head and body, his head and body will never be separated, but they will be permanently together. Because he was willing to take on flesh, we can know with certainty that we will be united with him one day. Our salvation is secure. Nothing can rob us of this. If I can, just very quickly... A little quote here from Dane Ortland in a wonderful little book. Guys, we actually gave you this book if you were at the men's retreat called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. But he says, one of the doctrines in the area of Christology that is difficult for some Christians to fully grasp is the permanent humanity of Christ. The impression often seems to be that the Son of God came down from heaven in incarnate form, spent three decades or so as a human, and then returned to heaven to revert back to his pre-incarnate state. But this is a Christological error, if not outright heresy. The Son of God clothed himself with humanity and will never unclothe himself. He became a man and will always be. This is the significance of the doctrine of Christ's ascension. He went into heaven with the very body, reflecting his full humanity that was raised out of the tomb. He is and always has been divine as well, of course. But his humanity, once taken on, will never end. That was the level of Christ's commitment to us as his church. Husbands, we can never say, well, I just, that's too much commitment. Because we could never do enough to even come close to reflecting the the commitment that Christ has for us. Christ's love for us is unfailing. Christ's love for us is the same all the time. John Owen, in his little book, Communion with God, He says, God's love is like the sun, always the same in its light, though a cloud may sometimes hide it. Our love is like the moon. Sometimes it is full, sometimes it is only a thin crescent. Is that not the case? I feel that all the time, that my love for Christ wanes and grows. And sometimes it's really full, and we're singing here on Sunday morning, but by Wednesday, that's gone away. And I feel like I'm not sure about his love and therefore I stop loving others because all of a sudden I have this great insecurity in me that's trying to look for love. But Christ's love does not fail, folks. It's the same all the time. He came and took on flesh and was willing to do so forever that we could be certain of his love for us. And again, husbands, the challenge to us is are we loving our wives in this way? Of course, there's a level on which that's over, that type of love that we see Christ display it is overwhelming, and we think, I could never do that, yet he has called us to try. Amen? He has called us to lead our homes in a way that brings him honor and glory. And when we don't do it right, we admit it, and we get up and we try again and again and again because of what he has done for us. And It's heartbreaking. And please, I'm not trying to throw any condemnation. Because, listen, there's no perfect husbands here, there's no perfect wives, and there's no perfect marriages. Amen? But, But it's tough that what the world often sees is not a reflection of Christ in the church. But instead, a commitment that is much less 
something else, something that does not rightly reflect the love of Christ. Worship team, come up, and we'll close. Just a couple things here as we close. Number one, have you complicated your marriage or your relationship with Jesus? Remember I said at the beginning, it's just not complicated. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simplicity and purity of devotion to your spouse. Just enjoy Christ. Just delight in who he is for you. Just delight in your spouse and who they are for you. Imperfect as they are. Secondly, is there an area of your life, and this is not just for ladies, but is there an area of your life in which Christ is asking you to submit to him as an act of worship? Is he pressing something on your heart that you have been resisting? That's not submission. Both men and women, is there an area of your life that Christ is asking you to submit? And if you can't bring yourself to do it, I would encourage you just to do it just as an act of worship. So God, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem right. It's, it's difficult but I'm going to pour it out like Mary poured out her precious perfume. And third, are you resting this morning? Are you resting in the reality that Christ is holding you fast this morning? Are you resting this morning in the fact that Christ has glued himself to you and to us as his church? There is no greater joy, and I'll tell you what, all security, all insecurity, all fear, all worry, all anxiety. When we think about the willingness of Christ, the commitment of Christ to give himself to us, all those things fade away. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Lord, we love you. Um, God, I just pray that you would strengthen our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to um, just to keep our eyes, as I prayed at the beginning, just fixed upon you. Father, I do pray for marriages this morning. I pray that if any marriage here this morning is hopeless, I pray that they'd be able to leave with hope. I pray, Father, that uh, you would be honored and glorified in our marriages, in our families, in all of our relationships. But Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for finding us when we were helpless, laying alongside the road. And you came by and picked us up and washed us and cleansed us and made us yours. We thank you for that mercy. I just pray, God, that you'd help us every day to live in light of it and in the joy of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.